going to continue with who is Paul. We looked at where Paul fits in to the whole of Scripture, that God is on a mission through the person of Christ to bring light to the darkness, to bring life to mankind who is dead spiritually, disconnected from God, to bring light to the darkness that people don't know who they are or why they exist or what life's about. And so through the nation of Israel, Jesus came to be the light of the world. And Paul had an incredible encounter with Jesus. And, and we see Jesus telling Paul to go to the Gentiles as a light to the world. So what Paul did was he went into these Gentile cities and he established grace-based churches. God's strategic purpose and plan for churches is to shine the light of Jesus into the dark community. Sometimes in the body of Christ, it's easy to begin to think, wow, things are really getting bad. And we'll begin to worry about our grandchildren and worry about our children and, well, things are really getting dark. But the beauty of the darkness for the church is, is that the darker the world gets, the brighter Jesus can shine. If you think about the stars, when do we see the stars shine brightly? Against the backdrop of the darkness of the sky. The darker the sky, the brighter the stars. So rather than seeing, boy, this world's really getting bad, and I don't know what's going to happen in America, and I'm, I'm not sure, and I'm really worried about things, it could be God setting the church up for his very finest moment. That what we consider maybe the worst moment could be the church's brightest moment if our perspective changes. So rather than seeing the U.S. and the world declining, we can see that, hey, yes, the world is plummeting into a greater depth of darkness. That's not surprising. That's, that's just how it is. The greater depths of the darkness that the world plunges into, if we, as the church universal, can understand that, wow, we can really shine the light of Jesus into this dark world at a greater level than we've ever been able to before, then we're going to be able to rescue through Christ a lot of people from the darkness and the dominion of darkness that they're living in and bring them to the kingdom of light. And we'll see that in Colossians. So Paul goes into these Gentile cities to start grace-based churches. By that, I mean everything God did for us in Christ, grace-based. It's the communication of all God did for us in Christ, that that would become the light to people living in the darkness. And so... We looked at Paul's commitment to Judaism. This was before he became a believer. We looked at Paul's conversion to Jesus. And then point three is we looked at Paul's communication with Jesus. That Jesus appeared to Paul. Jesus said to Paul, I, Jesus, have appeared to you, Paul, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I am sending you to them, to the Gentiles, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. So... As a church, we don't want to get discouraged because the world is plummeting into greater depths of darkness. That's the Gentile world. We've been sent to be a light to those in the darkness so that they can be rescued and they can be reconciled and enter into relationship with God. So rather than speaking about how bad things are getting, we can turn our conversation around. Hey, I know things are getting bad, but the church, God is setting us up for, for something great so that we can reach into the darkness and restore people back to relationship with God. So Paul was sent into the darkness so that people's eyes would be open to turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan, who is over the dominion of darkness, to God, so that they may receive, and we looked at the body of Christ, we're not in a place where we ask forgiveness. The message of the gospel of grace is we receive forgiveness and we spend the rest of our life thanking God that we are forgiven rather than continually asking for forgiveness. The gospel is one of receiving rather than, than asking based upon what Christ has done and the message that Jesus sent Paul with. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So sanctification is when a person has been made holy by the blood of Christ. We've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So when a person places their faith in Christ, we are immediately sanctified. We are immediately declared by God to be holy, to be righteous. That's why when Paul writes his letters 
to the Ephesians and to the Colossians and to the Corinthians. He always starts off with to the saints in Corinth. Greek word there means holy ones. To the, to the holy ones. Why are they holy? Well, not because of their behavior, but because of the blood of Christ. Because then he'll list some unholy behaviors that they have, but their behavior is not what makes them holy. The blood of Christ is. So he takes them back to their identity. This is who you are. You and I are forgiven. And by faith in Jesus, we are holy. We are pure. We are clean because of the blood of Christ. So this is the message that Paul was given by Jesus. And he writes about this message that he was given in Acts 1, 11 through 12. Paul said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin, what he means is I didn't get it from James, I didn't get it from Peter, nor did I get it from John. Nobody on this earth taught Paul the gospel that he communicated to others. And he makes it very clear here, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Paul's message is not an earthly message, it's, an he- it's a heavenly message. It's a message that came from the ascended Jesus to Paul, through Paul, to the Gentile world. So he's communicating this gospel. We're going to look pretty in-depthly at what this message is momentarily. He said, this gospel that I preach, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So the words of Paul are the words of Jesus through Paul. He's just an ambassador, we find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He's a mouthpiece. He's an ambassador of Christ. He's communicating the gospel message from Jesus who was ascended through Paul to the Gentile world. So, so these Gentile churches that were started all over the Roman Empire were founded in the gospel of grace, the message that the ascended Jesus gave Paul to communicate with people. We see that here in Acts 20, 23 through 24. Paul says, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So notice here that Jesus gave Paul a task, specifically from Jesus, who had ascended, of testifying or communicating or telling people about the gospel of God's grace. So there's two gospels in the Bible that we want to be aware of. Gospel simply means good news. So when somebody starts talking about the gospel, the question we want to ask is, well, which gospel are they referring to? Because in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the phrase is gospel of the kingdom, the good news about the coming kingdom that Jesus is going to establish on earth when he returns that's the gospel of the kingdom it's jesus coming to wear a crown as king but then we see jesus deliver another gospel to paul called the gospel of grace and this is jesus coming to bear a cross so the gospel of the kingdom is jesus coming to wear a crown and ruling as king the gospel of grace is jesus coming to bear a cross and reconciling us to God as Savior. In the word Christ, the word Christ or Messiah means Savior King. Savior King. So Jesus came to be King. He went to the cross as Savior, which is where grace happened at the cross. So we're in what's called the mystery age of grace, or the period of grace, when, when God is reaching out to the Gentile world's world as Savior through us to, to tell people about about Jesus. At the same time, we understand Jesus is coming back as king. Paul taught a lot about that in his letters. Jesus is going to return. He is going to establish his kingdom. But the way you get into the, to the kingdom is by grace. You don't earn your way into the kingdom. It's a gift of grace that we receive by faith, and we enter into the kingdom of God, and he returns. He'll establish that kingdom, and, and eventually the church will descend with him and reign with Christ. Paul said, I know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me. 
we see very clearly here that Paul was sent into cities, so that's when he writes his letters. Uh, he writes his letters to the church in Corinth and to the churches in Galatia and to the church in Ephesus and to the church in Philippi. So he writes letters back to these cities that he went into. And so he goes into these cities, according to the strategic plan of Jesus, to establish grace-based churches. So that then churches become the mouthpiece of the gospel of grace to those living in the community. That's the true purpose of a church, to communicate the good news of grace, of all God did for us in Christ, to those in the community, which then produces fellowship. If you notice in Philippians, Paul talks about grace and fellowship. The greatest fellowship relationship that happens among believers happens when we understand the grace of God. I've been with a lot of believers in my life. I've been with those who were believers in Christ but really didn't understand grace. And I've been with believers who did understand grace. And the fellowship that I've experienced with people who understood the grace of God freely, forever, and fully given us in Christ has been unbelievable. It creates fellowship. That's what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter when he talks about the fellowship of grace that he had with Lydia and the believers back in Philippi since the day he first met them. So he would go into cities. The purpose has not changed. The plan has not changed. The strategy has not changed. It's still the purpose of a church in a city is to communicate the good news of God's grace to the people of the city who are dead and living in darkness. It has not changed. The impact that we can have as we share this good news of the gospel. So that's what Paul was doing. We're, we're, we've got the same message. We've got the same ministry. We've got the same task of communicating this gospel. So we're looking at Paul's communication with Jesus. Ephesians 3, 2 through 3 says, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that's the Gentiles, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation. So it's, again, he's referring to the revelation of grace, the revelation of God's grace. The word administration here is it's a period of time where God is reaching out to the Gentile world through the church. And by the church, it's the body of Christ, the family of God, those who come to faith in Christ. To communicate the good news of grace of all God's done for us in Christ to those living in the darkness. And then to bring them in to our family of grace, to grow them in grace, and to send them back into the darkness that they came out of, with the good news of Christ and to bring others in. So Paul was given this responsibility of sharing this message and to the Gentiles, and, and, and he's the model for this good news of God's grace. Now, Paul was compelled to teach the gospel of grace. 2 Corinthians 4.15, this is one of two of my life verses. All this is for your benefit. What he's talking about there is, He's just talked in context that, that he faced death every single day in order to deliver the gospel of grace to those whom he was going to. All this, he's, all, the, all this is the persecution, the pain, the hurt, the heartache, the stress, the days he had food, the days he didn't have food, the days he had a place to sleep, the days he didn't have a, a place to sleep. It was really difficult. You know, the mountains he had to over. He had to go through the terrain, the geography, uh, the people. So every day he, he faced incredible hardships, both geographically and in society from people. But he said, I do what I do. All this is for your benefit. So here we see that grace has benefits. The gospel of grace, is, it benefits us. How? It changes us. It brings us to God. It it tells us we're forgiven. It tells us we're holy. It tells us we're righteous. Christ comes to live in us. The benefits of the gospel of grace. So the love of Paul here, he's saying, everything that I do to get grace to you is because I know that grace has benefits to your life because he was exhibit A. He could point to his own testimony. Let me share with you, he said, what the grace of God has done in my life or what Christ on the cross and what he's done for me what that's done in me and through me. And he writes about this, and we'll study this further in Galatians. But he says, all this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people. So now we see the heart of God. 
The heart of God is for his grace to reach more and more people. That's why as a church, we want to continue to grow. We want to continue to expand. We want to continue to reach people with the gospel of grace. Because people need to hear the gospel. They need to understand what Christ did for them on the cross. They need to understand the resurrection. They need to understand the ascension. They need to understand Christ in them. They need to understand. So we always want to be about reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace. So all of this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. When grace goes out to people living in the darkness, when the good news of what Jesus has done for us goes out into the lives of people living in the darkness, and they come to faith in Jesus, and they're rescued from darkness, and they're brought into the light of Jesus, it results in gratitude. So gratitude is my response to the gospel of grace. So when we hear grace, when we, when we come to understand the grace of God, the reaction or the response of those who've come to see the grace of God via the Holy Spirit, giving them the insight within their heart and mind, their first response is gratitude to God. There's a legalistic side of the church, unfortunately. I wish every member in the family of God could understand the gospel of grace. But they all don't. There is a legalistic side to Christianity. They believe when the gospel of grace is taught too much, emphasized too much, that it's going to create not gratitude to God, but rebellion to God. That grace is actually going to cause a person to sin more when scripture says it's the law that causes people to sin more and it's grace that causes people to sin less. The grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. Problem's not the law. Sin takes advantage of the law within a person's heart and people sin more under law than they ever would under grace. But there's a, a, a suppression of the gospel of grace within a wing of Christianity. That's what the beauty of this church is. There's no suppression, suppressing grace here. There's the expression of grace within love relationships with one another, and there's the expression of grace by teaching people what happened on the cross, the fullness of what Christ would, did, without any fear that the teaching of grace is going to lead somebody to sin. It's great confidence that the teaching of grace is what's going to lead people out of sin. So we don't water down the gospel because if we water it down with legalism, then we rob the gospel of its power to change lives. And then it just becomes a moralistic uh, religious system. So it may cause gratitude to overflow to the glory of God. What's that mean? We, we hear the phrase a lot, I want to glorify God. Uh, what, is, what, is, what does that mean to, to the glory of God? That means when grace goes out and people begin to see that through Christ they're 100% forgiven. And through Christ, they're completely righteous through faith in Christ. And they're holy before God, and they're members of God's family, and they're at peace with God because of Christ. And Christ indwells them and leads them to know God as Abba Father. When people see the good news of, of the gospel of grace, the cross, and all that Christ did for us, people will begin to see how good God is. See, Satan doesn't want people to see how good God is. So that's what he tried to do in the Garden of Eden when he told Eve, did God really say? Eve, God isn't as good as you think he is. God isn't as loving as you think he is. God actually doesn't want what's best for you. He's actually keeping what's best from you. So he's seeking to distort the character of God with his first lie that God is not good. And you can't trust him. We see in the gospel of grace causes people to see how good God is and how great God is because they begin to see what Jesus did for them on the cross and they begin to embrace it and accept it and celebrate it and live from it. And it just produces this incredible gratitude to God for what he's done in Christ as people see the goodness of God 
through what he's done for us in Christ. And then the, the passion that begins to come up from a person to go back into the darkness to share with people not only the person of Jesus, but what Jesus has done for us. Paul said this, the grace of God, is that it energizes me. The grace of God empowers me. The grace of God will cause me to face death daily to get to one person what Jesus has done for them. Because there's benefits to grace. They will have gratitude to God, which will cause them to see how good God is. And we've just taken away the first lie of Satan to those living in darkness, that God isn't good. Because the cross tells us something so much more different. So let's look at this gospel message that Paul received from Jesus and then communicated to the Gentile world. He starts off in Romans where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. He's going to define right here. Here's what the gospel is. He's about to define it. Righteousness from God is revealed. God's revealing a way to be righteous before him. A righteousness that is by faith. That's the gospel in one sentence. How does a person become right with God? How does a person become forgiven? How is a person accepted by God? What does it take for God to say, you are right with me? That's the question. Every religion on the, in the world says in order to be right with whatever their false God is, it's by being faithful within their religious system. Christianity in its purest form declares a message that says to be right with God, to be forgiven by God, to be clean before God, to be holy and pure, so that God looks at you as if you've never sinned, righteousness, the only way to stand before God in that type of position is by faith. No works, no earning, no trying, no formulas, no checklists, simply by faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the best news I've ever heard in my life. My, if my works contribute to anything, then Jesus' blood did not contribute to everything, as if that could happen. It's an impossibility. It's him. It's all him. It's none of us. That's the best news in the world. That's the news we go share with the people of the world. That's what gives people hope. In their darkness, where they feel rejected by God, God's angry with me. They're ashamed of what they've done. There's no hope. And then we bring, as the church, the family of God and the family of grace, become ambassadors of this message. They're going to say this is too good to be true. But it's true. It's, it's the gospel that results in life change. Now, Paul said here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. So often when we see this verse, that's how people read it. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I don't know any believer in the world who's really ashamed of Jesus. I think most believers that I don't know will, will stand up for Jesus. We will stand up for the name of Jesus. But I know a lot of believers who are ashamed of the work of Jesus. The gospel. They chased Paul down. People who believed in Jesus chased him down to shut him up. Not because of the name of Jesus that he proclaimed, but because of the work of Jesus that he proclaimed. I met a lot of preachers who told me personally, Brad, what you preach is right. And I would love to teach that in my church. He came to me. Kind of like Nicodemus, you know, in, away from all the other leaders. And he says, I would love to teach what you teach in my church, but if I teach this in my church, I will lose my job. I'll lose my reputation in the denomination that I'm a part of, and I can't afford to do that. But you're right. Now, he understood something, that I was taking a lot of hits from the denomination that he was part of. And he just wanted to come to me and say, I know you're taking a lot of hits. Keep preaching what you're preaching, because you're right. 
And I wanted to say, come on, man, come to the, come to the grace side. I know, I, know it's, I know your reputation will be ruined, but God will take care of you. you know? God, God will take care of all that. That's a tough place to be in, friend. I've met a lot of people who are ashamed of the gospel of grace because that's what Paul's talking about here. It's the power of God. If we want to see the power of God operate, we've got to share the gospel of grace. Because the power of God is not in a strategic... I've written a book called Strategic Church. And I've shared in the book that so often as a church... We get caught up in the wrapping paper. When what's really the most important is the gift which the wrapping paper covers. And so, so many of our church conferences are wrapping paper focused. What's the best way to externally present the church? I think that's important to be strategic. But unless we have the gospel of grace as what the wrapping paper encloses, then the strategy, God's strategy, God's power is not in the wrapping paper. His power is in the gift. Is the wrapping paper important? Absolutely. Paul said to the Jew like a Jew, to the Gentile like a Gentile, to those under the law like one under the law, to those not under the law like those. That's all wrapping paper focus. It's external. So Paul understood whatever community he went into, he would build relationships with people and conduct himself within that community in a wrapping paper mentality. But he said, I do it no matter what wrapping paper I need to use to reach this community, the gift's the same. The wrapping paper is just God's strategy so that I can deliver the gospel of grace. The gospel. Because that's where the power is. It's, it's, it's in the gospel. So Paul starts off in Romans. He's going to explain what this gospel is. That's, he's, he's like, the gospel is how a person becomes righteous before God by faith. That's the gospel. Now he's going to explain, why have I arrived at this conclusion? Why have I arrived that the only way to be righteous before God is by faith in Jesus? So he states his conclusion in Romans 16 and 17, and then he defends it in the, in the rest of Romans. He explains why that's true. So he starts off in Romans 1, if, you're, if we're in a courtroom, Paul's got to prove all of humanity guilty of sin because all of humanity is in need of grace. And if all of humanity is in need of grace, that the, one, the one thing they need to see to receive grace is that they're guilty of sin. It was really obvious that the Gentile world was guilty of sin. Their immorality the way they conducted themselves. So Paul in Romans 1 gives a list of the immorality of the Gentiles. The wrath of God had come upon them, and God was allowing them to experience the consequences of their choices of life apart from him. There was an additional wrath to come when God cleans up the earth, removes all sin and, and all sinners from the earth, and the righteous remain. And enjoy this new earth, this new heaven and earth, as the prophets tell us about. And as Peter talks about in 2 Peter. So, as Paul writes Romans 1, you can almost hear the Jewish leaders cheering Paul on. Go get them, Paul. Those worthless Gentiles. Those sinners. Those Gentile sinners. Those Gentile sinners, those immoral ones. Ah, we are so much better than them because we're moral. And we have the covenants of God and we have the prophets of God and we're so different than the Gentiles. We're actually so much more moral. We can get in that mentality as believers as we look at the, quote, sinners of the world and think somehow we're better than them when we all need the grace of God. We're no different. That's the point Paul is proving in chapter 2. He says, I know you're cheering me on as I give this laundry list of immorality about the Gentiles. But you're worse than the Gentiles. That's why they hated Paul. 
you're so much worse than a Gentile. Because you have the law of Moses. You have the Ten Commandments. God has revealed personally himself to you. And the history of Israel was constant rebellion to God and then prostituting themselves with the gods, the false gods of the Gentile nations. So then Paul, in chapter 1, condemns the Gentile race. In chapter 2, he condemns the Jewish, religious, arrogant, moral person, people that they, the leaders thought they were. And then chapter 3, there is none righteous. There is no Gentile that's righteous. And there is no Jew that's righteous. And then he follows this up with, no, not one. Not only does he say there's no one righteous, but he says, just in case there's somebody that pops into our brain when we think, well, certainly my granddad was righteous, and certainly, you know, Billy Graham was righteous, and certainly this person, man, he says, no, no, not one. Because God sees the heart. We see what's going on externally. God sees the heart. There is no one righteous. And until I see that I have zero righteousness, I will have no need for the 100% righteousness of Christ. If I think I'm 10% righteousness, then okay, I need 90% of his righteousness. I need 90% of his blood. But the fact is, none are righteous. We're all in need of grace. And that's what Paul goes into in Romans 3, that the law convinces the world of sin. The law shows us that we're unrighteous to lead us to Jesus, the righteous one. And then he goes into the heart of the gospel in Romans 3, 21 through 24. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith, there's faith again, in Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all, both Jew and Gentile, have sinned. And all fall short of the glory of God, of his righteous character, of his love, of of everything that he is, we're not. His character, we, we don't resemble the character of God apart from Christ. But we're justified, which is the act of God where he declares a person righteous, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Paul is making it crystal clear here that the only way a person can become right with God, righteous before God, forgiven, holy, pure, clean, has nothing to do with the law, apart from the law. The law is a religious system, and the law was a moral system. The law contained the certain observances that the people of Israel had to follow. It also was the law of Moses, the moral law. In chapter 2 of Romans, we see that the law was, the moral law was written on the hearts of the Gentiles. Simply by nature, we know murder is murder. Stealing stealing. God had written that moral awareness on the hearts of the Gentiles. So the law convicted the Jew of sin and guilt and death, and the law convinced and convicted the Gentile of sin and death. And then grace comes in. And until I'm convinced under law that I'm spiritually dead and cannot save myself, I have nothing to offer, until I'm 100% convinced of my own sinfulness, then I will never be in gratitude for his grace to its fullest extent. The people who have the most gratitude for grace are the people who've seen the depths of their own sin. And the deeper we see the depths of our sin and our desperation under law, the fuller our joy is for grace, our celebration of grace. That's why so many legalistic people have a difficult time with it, because they've never seen the depths of their sin. They see the checklist they live by. They see their false morality that they think they have. They see their religious system that they're fulfilling, or they think they're fulfilling. And so their confidence is now in their religious system and in their morality, 
Therefore, they, they, they just can't appreciate grace until they see the depths of their sin. Romans 3.28, for we maintain, Paul had to maintain this message because he was constantly being attacked. But every time Paul was attacked for teaching this message, he maintained the message. Had he not maintained the message, then we wouldn't have the book of Romans and the book of Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians where, and Hebrews, if he wrote Hebrews, where the fullness of the gospel of grace is communicated. But he had to maintain it in the face of incredible persecution. So we maintain, he said, that a person is justified, made right before God, forgiven by God, by faith, apart from the works of the law. Talks about it in Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, forgiven, made righteous, holy, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace that we now stand. If you've come to faith in Christ, you stand in grace. Paul had been talking about the wrath of God is coming, and the wrath of God, to me, is the love of God where he totally removes all the pain and the hurt and the heartache that's on this earth and everything that causes that. And he establishes the new earth where there's no hurt and there's, there's no pain and there's no heartache. That's his, his wrath. It's cleansing. Sometimes the anger of God is talked about, but to me that it's produced by love. Sometimes we, we get angry at some of the things we see going on and, and the way people are treated, in it, but it's from love because we don't want to see people treated that way. And God's the ultimate lover. And his wrath is his love in action where he's cleansing the world of sin. But he doesn't want anybody to fall upon his, under his wrath. So he's provided Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's, it, Peter talks about it. Why doesn't Jesus come back now? Because God is patient and he, he wants all to repent. He doesn't want anybody to come under that judgment. And he's provided the person of Christ who took the wrath of God upon himself at the cross. And it's free. It's free. To those who believe. Romans 5, 17, those who receive. Notice the word receive again. Christianity is not a system of asking or achieving. It's just receiving, accepting and receiving. Therefore, those who receive God's abundant provision of grace, that's all that God did for us in Christ, and the gift of righteousness. So we've got to wrap the gift of the gospel in the right wrapping paper based upon the city that we live. But we've got to make sure we're wrapping the gospel and not just a strategy. It's all about this, because this, that's where the power is, right? The power is in the gift that's freely given and freely received. So the law in Galatians 4.24 says the law was put in charge in 25 to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. We'll talk more about that in Galatians. For Christ is the end of the law to bring righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10.4. Two of the problems that were happening in Galatia. Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. That's what happened in Galatia. Paul had brought the good news of God's grace to Galatia. They set grace aside and returned to the law for righteousness. So they went from having received righteousness by faith in Christ to these Judaizers from Jerusalem coming in who had faith in Christ as Messiah but they had no faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. They, they believed, yes, Jesus is the king, and he's the Christ, and he's the Messiah. But they set aside the cross. We'll look at this further in Galatians. So Paul's writing to say, hey, set aside the law. It's come to an end. And pick up grace. All right, stand in grace. So he says in Galatians 5, 4, you who are trying to be justified by law, you've alienated yourselves from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Now, that's a phrase I heard a lot over the years. And I used to think that to fall from grace means that as a believer in Christ, to fall into immorality, to turn my back upon God and start living a sinful life. Because whenever a star or an athlete 
has a, mor a, a moral failure. You know, they may come out on Time Magazine or in a newscast that so-and-so fell from grace. I mean, they fell out of the good standing in the eyes of the, the state that they live or the country that they live. They, their immorality caused them to fall out of a good standing within the eyes of others. Falling from grace has zero to do with a sinful lifestyle of a believer. To fall from grace, according to Scripture, is to fall into a moral system and into a religious system where I'm trying to earn a right standing before God by being moral and by being religious. It's the very opposite of what the majority of people in churches understand to fall from grace to mean. When I've taught that phrase over the years, I'll typically take a whiteboard like this and I'll ask those whom I'm teaching, what does it mean to fall from grace before I read this verse? And they'll say, sin, backsliding, I mean, everything flows from immorality, walked away from God. And I'm like, phrase within scripture. And it's just the opposite of everything that they just told me. It's the 100% opposite. To fall from grace is to be moral and thinking my morality causes God to look upon me as, you did it. Good job. Way to go with your religious activity. Way to go with your morality. You are now right with me. You are now justified. You are now in right standing with me because of the right things you're doing. Religious activity, morality, that's what fall from grace means. That totally changed my life when I saw that. Because as a believer, I, had, I was living as one who had fallen from grace. Thinking that my daily morality and my daily religious activity somehow earned me something with God. I could feel good about my relationship with God today because of what I did. If I had my quiet time that morning, I could feel good the rest of the day that, oh, okay, I've had my quiet time, now I can feel good about my relationship with God. If I had my devotion, if I confessed all my sins, then I could feel good about my relationship with God. I was putting forth effort to try to be right with God and to feel good about my relationship with God. And even though these were good things that I may have been doing, I had fallen from grace. And when I saw this, I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm never going to base my relationship with God again on me. Because if I could base my relationship with God upon me, then I really don't need Jesus. That's what Paul said if, You've set aside the grace of God. If righteousness could be gained through the law, then Jesus died in vain. If, if anything that I did merited anything with God, then I really don't need Jesus. And the law convinces me that there's nothing I can do. And grace is he did it all. And I just enjoy a relationship with God now, with or without a quiet time. If people talk to people, are you saying we shouldn't have a quiet time anymore? Saying this, I say, if, if that's what the Lord is leading you to do, then certainly do it. If you want to and you enjoy that morning time with the Lord and that cup of coffee, then certainly do that. But it's not a requirement. God doesn't have a checklist that says, make sure you have your morning quiet time so that you can feel good about your relationship with me. And if you don't, then I'm looking down upon you because you missed your quiet time. Oh, what a miserable way to live. That's either going to produce pride or pity. Look at me, I have my quiet time. God's happy with me. Oh, I didn't. Oh, God's not happy with me. So now I've fallen from grace because I'm basing my relationship with God not upon the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ, but by my religious and daily checklist. So I encourage people. I've got a great friend who the gospel of grace totally changed her life. She was on Percocets. And I don't know how she got to where we were. She had taken 50. She should have died. So she sat in the living room of my house with Becky and me. And we just began to share with her in her broken condition the good news of the gospel, of what, I, what we're learning today. And it just empowered her like this. She said, Brad, I just want to just stand on the roof and I just want to share with people the gospel of grace and all God's done for me in Christ. And it's in the living room. 
She wakes up every morning at five because she loves to spend time with God in a quiet time. That's her time that she likes. I don't, that's not me. I just, all day, just like to talk to God. And I, I don't have a daily quiet time. And some people, oh my gosh, you don't have a daily quiet time. You got to have a quiet time. Yeah, I, just, I just know I'm in relationship with the Father because of what Christ has done. And Christ lives in me. And I just sort of just spend time with the Father all day long and, and conscious and aware of Christ in me. And it's, it changed my life. But I would never tell anybody, hey, don't, if, if that's what you enjoy, then, oh, I'll, please continue. But it's not a requirement, so you, it's based upon guilt or not feeling guilty. Does that make sense? Okay. So you who are trying, putting forth effort through morality and religious activity to be justified by the law, you have alienated yourself from Christ. Meaning you're not depending upon Christ anymore for righteousness. You're now depending upon your religious activity and morality, which was me up until about 1990, up until I was about 25 years old. You have followed from grace. Doesn't mean they're not saved. Doesn't mean they're lost. They're just not depending upon Christ. They've slipped into legalism, basically. So the believers that Paul is writing to in Galatia, they're saved, but they're just not relating to God through grace. They're relating to God by law. He's trying to get them to come back to law. Paul's connection to the Galatian churches. So in Acts 1 through 8, we see the persecution beginning to happen of those who were coming to faith in Jesus as Messiah. And then we see, because of the persecution, we see Jewish people begin to leave Jerusalem and they go out into the cities surrounding the area. One of the cities that they go into is Syria of Antioch. And it becomes the first Gentile church. The first church where you say, there's a lot of Gentiles in this, this family who've come to faith in Christ. Well, the religious leaders from Jerusalem heard about these Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ. So they send Barnabas to Syria, Antioch, to investigate what in the world is happening in Syria, Antioch. And he, he goes back and he reports what he discovered is the grace of God has fallen upon the Gentiles. And so Barnabas, having been sent and delivered the message back, has got many, many Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ. He doesn't know what to do because so many people came to faith in Christ who needed to be taught the gospel of grace. He certainly couldn't do it. There wasn't a lot of people to pick from and choose from at that point in time. Saul, now Paul was back in his hometown of Tarsus, probably sharing the gospel with people there. So Barnabas remembers Paul. The Holy Spirit puts the name of Paul into his mind, and he says, I'm going to go get Paul. That's who I need to help me teach these people about the gospel of grace. So he goes and gets Paul, and he brings Paul back to Syrian Antioch. It says this in Acts 11, 25 through 26. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. That's Syria, Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, and they taught great numbers of people. See, discipleship is not getting people. Discipleship is not helping people have quiet times every day. That's how I was discipled. All right, Brad. Make sure you have a quiet time every day. Make sure all your sins are confessed. Make sure you stay in fellowship with God. Make sure you attend this and you go here and you're there. That's not discipleship. That's a religious program and that's all that is. Discipleship is teaching. A disciple is a learner. We're teaching. Paul discipled Timothy. Jesus discipled Paul with the truths of grace. Paul discipled the church in Antioch with the truths of grace. He he probably discipled Barnabas with the truths of grace. That's why Barnabas knew to go get Paul. And so while they're in this church in Antioch of Syria, now in the church of, at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius, Cyrene, Menin, who had been brought up with Herod the 
Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Acts 13 uh, through 14. As they traveled inland to Pisidian Antioch, that's the first city of Galatia they went into. They went into Iconium, they went into Lystra, and they went into to Derby, and then they returned, Acts 14.3. So Paul and Barnabas sent considerable time in Iconium, speaking boldly for the Lord, who affirmed the message of his grace. So what's the message that Paul is communicating? The message of grace, all right? But he affirmed this message by enabling them to perform signs and wonders as apostles. They were given this power, and then they returned back from Attilia they sailed back to Syria, Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had completed. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together, and they're back in the church of Acts 11, and they reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time there with the disciples. See, when you and I are declaring the gospel to people, the response of the gospel is always faith. It's not commitment. It's not effort. It's not, it's faith. It's belief. It's trusting that Jesus did it all. It's I believe it. I trust it. I have faith. It's not my works. It's not my commitment. It's not my devotion. If it is, then none of us can be saved. Because how much commitment would, Jesus, would God require for us to say, okay, I'm going to commit myself to Christ 100%. Well, we can't do it. It's faith. So when we're sharing the gospel, the response is simply encouraging people to believe it, receive it. And the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts to believe and, and to have faith. 